0: When you talk about dulcet tones, it's very possible that what you're talking about is Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass. When you talk about dulcet tones other times, it's very possible that you're not talking about the voice of full-time employee Dave Cameron. However that may be, it is in fact that same Dave Cameron who is our guest today on Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sistuli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. In this particular edition of the podcast, we witness the much-awaited return of Mr. Dave Cameron to same pod. In what follows, you can hear Cameron and myself discuss the pros, and maybe mostly cons, of attempting to offer a Fangraphs' official position on end-of-season awards. You can hear Cameron's opinion on the close-ish wild card races as we near the end of the season. We discuss which teams, uh, because of their pitching staffs, perhaps, or a certain balance between left and right-handed batters, might be best situated for the playoffs. And finally, uh, and totally an, a not a non-sequitur, we discuss the Nationals' rotation for 2012. Cameron discusses at some length some guy named Steven Strasburg, while I, perhaps in a futile attempt, celebrate the contributions of... Tom Malone, and Bradley Peacock. All of that, and slightly more, on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. After a brief furlough, uh, Fangraphs Audio is back, and uh, after a slightly longer furlough than that, uh, if I'm using the word furlough correctly, likely I'm not, is uh, my guest today, Dave Kierman. Dave, how are you?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: Good, I'm well, joining us from your southern home. Uh, Indeed. Full of platelets? Is that what's happening?
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I'm full of platelets. I have been, uh, platelet rushing because they were, uh, quite low.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, we should, uh, we should just, we'll just do, a, we'll do a health status update. Of course, you're, uh, well, you've crushed leukemia, but now you're just, what, you're protecting your body from, uh, from more from it coming back and also from anything that might happen from the chemotherapy is that right?
1: Sort of yeah so one of the side effects of chemotherapy is that it destroys your immune system it just you know isn't it takes no prisoners so it goes in and gets all the bad stuff and all the good stuff so they just have me on a lot of medicine to you know make sure I don't get an infection and die
0: yeah are they making you handsomer at all? Have
1: they taken? Well, any I, have no, I have significantly less hair, so if you're into the bald people look, then you know, I think like uh, me and Jack Rensett could probably go hit up the ladies pretty well.
0: I won't tell your wife, your lovely, yeah. tolerant yeah. wife. <laughs> she actually
1: that. likes the she likes the bald look, but uh, I think once the hair starts growing back, I will I'll be happy to have it return.
0: You haven't. You never had what I would call a uh, a great haircut. You've never had one of.
1: Thank you. you you've you never had what I consider a uh, sense of passion.
0: <laughs> it's nice to have you back, Dave Cameron, <laughs> on the <laughs> Good podcast. Sister,
1: sister, Mr. Sistouli.
0: Yeah. Hey, let's start off with, um, speaking of things going wrong, uh, let's start off with a post that's just gone up on the site called In Retrospect, <laughs> Retrospect, I should yes, say. Yeah,
1: my favorite post that I've ever written. I would love to talk more about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's, uh, no, but it's, it actually kind of, I think it, it it's sort of um, it's an interesting look, or you know, like what, uh, the thing you were trying to do, the thing that you sort of came up with as uh, as our full time employee is uh, was to kind of was to come up with Fangraph's uh, Fangraph's official positions on uh, the various uh, end of the season awards that were going to come out. Yeah. Um, So, what was your basic the idea to kind of give to say like this is this is our feeling on the matter because a lot of people are using war now, etc.
1: Yeah, I think what so when we conceived of this idea in my head, what we were really wanting to do is kind of um, clarify what the statistical community thinks about how statistics should be used in awards voting because you see a lot of pieces written from the mainstream media, especially those who aren't big fans of war or the rest of our metrics, saying that. That has believed that you should just, you know, do to a leaderboard sort and vote that way, or they're they're making claims essentially on our behalf that uh, isn't what we believe. And so, you know, there's a decent um, amount of the mainstream media that reads Fangraphs. And so, I think what I was hoping for is that we could put out a series of posts that would kind of say like, this is really what we see the value of our metrics being. Um and this is how we think they should be used. Here's where we acknowledge, you know, they're not perfect and you shouldn't just vote according to leaderboard sorts. Um and here's where, you know, feel free to use your own interpretation of what this means and kind of explaining um a maybe a more rational uh approach to statistical analysis than we're generally given credit for. Um, you know, in practice it didn't it didn't work as well as I would have hoped. So uh I had to put up a quick post just kind of saying, you know. Feedback was listened to and, uh, you know, I think it just a lesson learned. I mean, you know, I think taking an official position for a staff of 40 people may be a little presumptuous in saying, you know, like, this is what we all believe because we don't all believe the same thing and, you know, we're a big, diverse group of people um, and even trying to speak for the statistical community at large is may- maybe not something we should be doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, because I know that... Um In your writing, and and, and, and certainly the best writing on the site, one of the things that's that's hopefully happening, right, is that uh, in each post you're making enough of a point um, so that there's a a point of view there, and that there's a a takeaway for the reader. But at the same time, it's always, you know, because essentially we're applying the scientific method um, and a lot of, you know, sort of statistical, statistical methodology. To to a game involving real people, we're also uh, trying to be careful about the, the blanket quality of our statements. I guess right. We're not trying to make anything any statements too firmly. Um, and I know that that was certainly. Uh, I actually enjoyed uh, Matt Clausen's AL MVP write up. Right. But, but I know that that's you. You see him in that write up, kind of. Um, going back and forth between making too strong a claim but making a strong enough claim so that there's a reason for the post to exist in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that you know, there's a I would say that we want to have uh, valid opinions that help push conversations forward and I think that was one of the things that I really liked about Matt's article was talking about uh you know our metrics are not supposed to be around to end conversations. We don't really uh, encourage the use of war as a this guy was better than that guy. look at his war, and that's the end of it, and you stop talking and And you know there is some of that, and that's not necessarily what it was designed for. It's not really how we think it should be used so i you know, I liked the way that Matt put you know that war should make conversations better not not shorter um but I do think you know uh, overall, we want to. Acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of different opinions in the statistical community, and maybe having an official position from Fangraphs is, uh, you know, presumptuous would probably be the best word I could
0: use. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's fair. Do you, I mean, this obviously, uh, you know, I mean, Fangraphs has only been around so long, you know, probably like three or four years in in, in sort of um, a big way, and then a couple more years beyond that where uh, Appman was sort of figuring out what the site was. Uh, it's still we have no perfect way of framing these conversations necessarily. I think that uh, you know a stat like war do, does now help to to inform those conversations but what do you think is the sort of i mean if you see it ideally and you were obviously going for something close to it or you know something approaching it with the official position but like what is if 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 we're adding to the conversation as opposed to stopping it like what is the kind of future of advanced stats in in informing the end-of-season end of, end of season awards voting?
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, and this is one of the things that Matt did a good job of touching on, is I think that these awards, especially war, does a really good job of kind of identifying who the valid candidates are. So I mean, if you look through the history of MVP voting, maybe the most egregious one you can think of is Juan Gonzalez in 1996, uh, I think he was a two-and-a-half-win player, and uh, Alex Rodriguez had perhaps one of the greatest shortstop seasons of all time, he was like a ten-and-a-half-win player, and Ken Griffey Jr. was like a nine-and-a-half-win player as a center fielder. I mean, these were like, that, that wouldn't happen anymore. Juan Gonzalez would not win the MVP in 2011. Uh, and, you know, I think we are at least have the tools to say, these people are real candidates. Now, if you want to try and pick between them, that's a little tougher and still requires some discussion, but this guy, not legitimate candidate. And so I think that there's, you know, the ability to have tools that can almost act as a filter and stop really egregious mistakes from happening is a a pretty valuable thing. And so even if war is not the precise tool that needs to be um, used to separate Curtis Granderson from Jacoby Ellsbury from Jose Latista, the fact that it lets us know that those are the three guys we should be dissecting is helpful. And so I do think that there's um, usefulness in non-precise stats to at least collect groups of players to discuss and kind of say, you should vote for one of these six, which one you vote for, you know, do some more research.
0: Right. So, so, so essentially, if, if Fangraphs was going to do a post or was going to do something called official position, do you think it would be acceptable to, to have an official position on the candidates at least?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, we one of the things we're going to be rolling out later this week is our staff awards ballot, where everyone's voting for their own candidates at each um, aw- for each award, and I think you're going to see a pretty general consensus around the top five or six guys. Uh, you're not going to see, um, you know, 15 guys getting MVP votes. So, you know, I think you're going to see Ellsbury, and you're going to see Batista, and you're going to see uh, Berlander, and you're going to see, you know, all the guys being discussed in the mainstream media. They are the right candidates this year, and so... Um, I think, if nothing else, that's a big step forward And that there's no Shannon Stewart this year who's getting crazy votes, or Justin Morneau or, you know, just a, a guy who's having a good year who gets overrated by the narrative. I think Ward does a good job of kind of pushing those guys out of the picture.
0: I know that one thing that Claussen, uh, uh, he sort of, uh, he picked an arbitrary, well, I don't know if it was entirely arbitrary, but he picked a cutoff where it's like, uh, Guys, so you think you know it's Ellsbury at the top, and then he went with the guys who were you know within one and a half war right. of Ellsbury. Is 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 that going to change year to year, or do you think that generally we'll see something you know between like you just think about you know at least within two wins from the leader?
1: Yeah, I probably would have gone with two um, more than one and a half. I think you know if you look at defensive metrics and the margin of error around those in a single season, I think two wins is not a terrible uh, barometer. Um, and then if you're going to introduce pitchers into discussion I mean you know, I think there's a decent case to be made that Justin Verlander has been better than his fan war would indicate because it's based on FIP and he's got a 235 batting average on balls in play and you know some of that's luck but some of that's probably Justin Verlander too so you know I think to include pitchers in discussion maybe even push a two and a half war but I think you know in general, it's not going to be that hard to corral a pool of guys who have had legitimately great years. And then you can dive in a little deeper to try and figure out which one you want to give the award to. But the corralling the pool should hopefully keep out the Juan Gonzales and the Shannon Stewarts of the world.
0: Now, if we look at it from the point of view that that there's a list of candidates, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest and say that the end-of-season awards, I at least to date, have not particularly interested me because there's so little reason on display uh i mean you know in some cases i guess th- there's an interesting conversation to be had i like the idea that uh advanced metrics you know you know, if they're not i mean probably better that they're not being obeyed religiously by the mainstream media but that it's that it's part of the conversation at least um i i mean what is the ultimate what is the ultimate payoff i guess for caring about the end of season awards I, in fact i believe that you've written one uh, you've written a post uh, at some point in your life to somebody like Something's effective. I don't care anymore. Right. What was the, what was that post and have well, yeah, you changed
1: your mind? I think I wrote that last year actually, and it still mostly holds, but I don't really care who wins the end of the uh, season awards. I mean people ask in the chats every week, you know, who who would you vote for? I'm like, you know, pick one. Like I think Jose Batista had a great year, Jacoby Ellsbury has had a great year, Justin Berlanders had a great year. If you give any of them the trophy, it's not really gonna change my life at all. But I think in that post specifically my argument was that I don't really care about the opinions of other people as a collective who have laid out a criteria that I don't really agree with. So like when, you know, if people are going to say, I think the MVP can only come from winning teams, that's fine. I don't necessarily share that view. And if you give an award based on that criteria, I'm not really sure why it should matter to me all that much. And so, um, you know, I, I realize this is a historical, um you know it factors into the hall of fame and it factors into kind of how players are perceived long term but i think with the amount of data we have uh and the amount of video that we have it's not like a guy who puts up a 10 war season if he doesn't get the mvp he's not going to be forgotten we're going to know that he put up a 10 war season and we're going to be able to talk about that for a really long time so i don't know that we necessarily are so reliant on the awards anymore to tell us the history of baseball because we have so much documented history of baseball from this era
0: well, okay, so we're sort of focusing on, in for good reason, because it's September, uh, the end of the season. And of course, uh, maybe, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, uh, the end of the season is maybe slightly more interesting than it looked like it would be a couple weeks ago. Um, a couple races have developed that weren't that also weren't there a couple weeks ago, and those are the uh, the NL wild card, uh, where the Cardinals. Have at least shown some life um, or perhaps more to the point the Braves have done done the opposite uh and actually a, a similar thing's happening in the a l wild card uh where the Red sox uh whose fans you ordered not to panic last week uh, have perhaps uh, well they've they've perhaps given their their uh, fans some reason to panic uh because they're up now uh, only by two over the Rays. Um, although the uh, schedules, uh, the schedule favors the Red Sox here and out. Either of those uh, races or both of those races of any particular interest to you? And do you think uh, anything surprising will unfold from them?
1: I mean, they're of interest in the fact that they mean that we have meaningful baseball games longer. I mean, I think realistically, if the Red Sox would have taken two of three over the weekend and the Braves would have played better and Craig Kimball didn't blow a save to uh, uh, Omar Infante last night, we would have been looking at the last eight or nine days of baseball and not having a single meaningful game the rest of the way. And so, you know, I think that this, the fact that we have at least games that could, you know, I don't think the Orioles are going to beat up on the Red Sox, but it could happen. I mean, the Red Sox pitching isn't very good right now. And, uh, you know, if the Orioles put up 15 runs a game, uh, that, you know, it can make an interesting final week of the season. I don't think either Boston or Atlanta is going to lose their spot. I think they have strong enough leads that it's going to hold up. Um, but at least it gives us interesting baseball over the last week
0: yeah i mean do you do you take any pleasure uh, well and of course as a mariners fan, uh, this is relevant to you uh do you take any pleasure in in games where there's no uh, sort of playoff baseball at stake?
1: Yeah, well, if I didn't, I would have stopped watching baseball a long time ago, because very few of my, uh, Mariner watching games have involved any kind of playoff aspirations. But, uh, you know, I think there's interesting stuff to be found in almost any game. Uh, you know, there's often young players who are interesting to watch, or, um, guys who've made dramatic changes. I mean, there's usually some, some story to watch in a baseball game, but I'd be, uh, crazy to say that a baseball game where the result was uh significant factor in a playoff race wasn't more interesting than two teams who were just playing up the string so you know like seattle and cleveland played yesterday did not hold my attention you know as, as much as uh you know the boston uh baltimore game did because it, that game had an impact on the playoff races and so you know i think the added drama of this game matters uh certainly makes games more interesting even if every game is interesting in its own way
0: yeah actually uh and I will get the theoretical, but only very briefly. Uh, there's some work by uh, he was a French sociologist named Roger Kelwa, uh, and he did some interesting writing on games and and what makes them interesting to us. And one of the uh, I guess one of the criteria is that like you have the sense that your that the players is sort of your surrogate on the field that there's a sense of urgency. Um, and I wonder I. I I, I, probing the depths of my own soul, it seems as though if I'm watching a game and I know that the player that there's like very little at stake, for the example, uh, for example, that Seattle-Cleveland game you mentioned yesterday, uh, it's harder. You, in the sense that even if the players, I mean, some of the players are playing for pos- their positions, right? Like um, I don't know, Luis Rodriguez has some incentive to play well, or Kyle Seeger has some incentive to play well at third base for the Mariners for his own personal, st- you know, uh, interest but you don't necessarily get the sense the team needs to win. Do you think that's the biggest factor?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is, you know, uh, the individual storylines certainly outweigh the end-of-game results. And so, I mean, you know, like uh, the Mariners won a game the other day uh, where Tom Wilhelmson, who, uh, you know, was a a bartender for five years after quitting baseball, got the victory, and Steve Delabar. Uh, got to save, or uh, I might be getting that wrong, but the, the Steve Elbar was a, a school teacher in uh, the spring and before he walked on and got a job and got himself to the major league. And it's not that the Mariners beating the Yankees was any kind of cool accomplishment, but there was this really interesting story where a guy who quit baseball for five years, uh, set up for a guy who was a uh, school teacher in April, and these guys combined to beat the Yankees. And, uh, you know, I think in, in aspects like that, you can say, this is an interesting story. This is, uh, a cool, at least personal, victory for these two guys, who may or may not have Major League Futures, but you know what, they got themselves a win over the Yankees and that's something they'll be able to tell their kids and their grandkids about.
0: Right. Will you tell your kids and grandkids about it?
1: Uh, probably
0: not. Okay, so the uh, mm-hmm. the story only goes so far. Mm-hmm. The um, I, There are a couple other uh, sort of uh, uh, 2012 stories that I'd like to look at in a bit if we have time, uh, but in, in terms of uh, heading into the playoffs, I, I've a thing that I don't maybe know uh, everything about, maybe I have some suspicions about, is what necess- is what makes a good playoff team. Uh, I, I, you know, we know to to a certain degree randomness is at play in a five or seven game series, especially five game series. Uh, but however, uh, there must be certain teams that are uh, particularly well situated for the playoffs. Can you talk maybe about the criteria uh, for that for being well situated for the playoffs, and then what teams? Uh, maybe uh, sort of meet those criteria particularly well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we found that, you know, teams of all shapes and sizes can win in the playoffs. There's definitely not a magic sauce that is guaranteed to work. You've seen power-hitting teams who are terrible at defense lane. You've seen defense-first teams who, you know, win games one to nothing win. So any team could win. But I do think there are certain areas that become heightened in the playoffs Um, I think, you know, the one that gets focused on the most is front-of-the-rotation strength. So everyone loves the Phillies because they have Cole Hamels and Roy Halladay and Cliff Lee, and that's pretty tough to match up with in a seven-game series. Um, You know, when Roy Oswald's your fourth starter, you're doing pretty good. And so I think, you know, people will look at the strength of a starting rotation and say, okay, the fifth starter doesn't really matter, and your the quality of your top three really matter because they're each going to get two starts in a seven-game series. Um, but I think the bullpen also has significantly improved in terms of uh, effectiveness. If you look at, you know, uh, a five or six man bullpen with the off days in the playoffs, you can leverage those guys uh, and use them very often in nearly every situation that you need a, a, a big out. And so, you know, the Braves could bring in George Sherrill or Eric Flaherty in the fourth or fifth inning to get a tough lefty because they can afford to use these guys with the scheduled off days and lean much, much heavier on a smaller pool of pitchers and having to stretch out their, their pitching staff. And so I think teams that have bullpen depth uh, can certainly get a big advantage in October. And then I think, you know, uh, player teams that have uh, team lineups that are tough to match up with. If you have a lot of switch hitters or if you have uh, a good platoon or if you have at least some kind of roster that is not easily exploited by some other team's strength. So, you know, a few years ago, we saw the White Sox in the playoffs run out an almost all right-handed lineup, and it wasn't that tough to beat them. You just brought in right-handed relievers and shut down their offense. And so, I think having at least a mix of uh quality offensive hitters from both sides is important. If you have, you know, if you're too right-handed or you're too left-handed, that can get exploited in October.
0: Yeah, I, I I seem to remember. I think it was a couple playoffs ago. There was a series involving the Yankees. I believe it was, in which some combination of Mariano Rivera, C.C. Sabathia, and maybe at that time it was Burnett or another uh, top pitcher, pitched something like 80 or 85% of all their innings.
1: Yeah, I think that was actually uh, two years ago when they had that uh, crazy multiple-day-off thing and they could use a three-man rotation. And so their three starters and Rivera pitched like 84% of the innings in the series. It was was ridiculous.
0: Right, and so what you're saying, though, is that... um, is that in this case, uh, a team that's maybe uh, a team can use some of its parts, uh, can emphasize them a, a little bit more uh, heavily than you would be able to over the course of the season? Yeah. Okay. I,
1: I think, you know, uh, certainly the off days eliminate the fifth starter. So pitching depth is not nearly as important as having quality at the front end. And then, you know, if you're willing to use the start pitch, pitchers on three days rest, uh, you can go down to a three-man rotation if you want. And so I think you know if you have three really good starters and there's a significant drop-off to your four or five, that can get minimized in a playoff series. If you have uh, depth of relievers, you can uh, minimize the weakness of a starting pitcher by taking him out really early. I mean, we saw the Reds do this last year, even though they got swept by the Phillies. They had very early hooks on their starting pitchers, removing them in the third or fourth inning because they had significant bullpen depth. And that's something that you can do if you have a questionable starting pitcher you only need them to get through the lineup one time and then you can go to the bullpen.
0: And so are uh, are you ready to make uh, bold pronouncements about the team that, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Phillies, is that the team you think is most well-situated for the playoffs?
1: I mean, the Phillies are obviously uh, an excellent team, you know, their starting pitching is one of the best we've seen in a really long time um, but I will harken back to the 1990s Braves who had some of the best pitching staffs of all time and won one World Series. So I do think the effects of starting pitching in October are somewhat overstated. It takes uh, a total team effort. You have to be able to hit. You have to be able to field, and you have to have your relievers be able to hold down leads. And so, um, you know, I think the Phillies are a good team. I don't think they're the best team in baseball. I think that's the Yankees. Um, but I think, you know, in the National League, the Phillies do stand head and shoulders above their opponents and probably have the easiest path—the World Series—of any team going to October.
0: You know, as a as a footnote to that, uh, I some uh, somehow found my my way to Pl- Placido Polanco's graphs page today. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but He's been like a one-win defender his, like his entire career, Yeah, he's, like he's every good. season.
1: Yeah, Polanco's one of those guys who has the classic underrated skill set because there's not a single plus tool anywhere to be found. If you were going to scout him, you'd be like, Oh this guy's not that fast, he's not that strong, uh, You know, he doesn't draw that many walks. There's just nothing really about Placido Polanco that screams out high-quality player, but he does everything just well enough and, you know, his defense is uh, better than you would expect based on his physical tools, that he's, a, you know, a quality three- to four-win player, and he has been basically since he came into the league.
0: Yeah, that's really surprising. I, I you know, I mean, I certainly, you know, I spent some time watching Polanco, and uh, I, I guess, I, I don't know that, I, I'm pretty sure he doesn't make his, uh, any sort of more highlight reel plays, and he's definitely not, he's not typically in the conversation even uh when you start discussing, you know, the elite defensive third baseman like, you know, Adrian Beltre or Ryan right. Zimmerman. But he, but you're right, he sort of occupies that space behind like not elite in any particular category.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean it, I think he's the classic uh case of the sum of is greater than the whole you know, the, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts is you know Placido Planco, when you add up everything that he does fairly well is a pretty useful player, but he's not anywhere close to the best of anything.
0: Yeah, and, uh, of course, uh, if we look at the leader boards of pleasure from this week, we'll notice that, uh, Placido Polanco is, in fact, uh, first overall among the league's underrated players. Well,
1: not, not at all surprising. He has the skill set that is generally, uh, ignored. And I think, you know, the Phillies have several of those guys. I mean, Shane Victorino is having an amazing season that has gone mostly unrecognized. And, uh, Chase Ellie, for a long time, was underrated before he became a playoff hero. And, uh, you know, the Phillies have kind of done a really nice job of collecting guys who are highly productive players who kind of hang out in the background
0: strangely they also have um one of the most uh i I wouldn't say uh well we won't use the word overrated but we'll say least underrated players in ryan howard
1: (laughs) yeah i think that that is probably a uh, cause and effect there is so much attention goes to ryan howard there's just not much room left for anyone else on that team and so the fact that he has teammates more valuable than himself gets ignored and the fact that ryan howard gets a lot of rbis
0: uh, now, I do want to uh, – I mentioned we would look forward to, to 2012 a little bit, or I guess to to the degree that September helps us or encourages us to look forward, especially for those teams that are not in the thick of the playoff hunt. Uh, a team that's particularly interesting to me, uh, uh, specifically because of their starting pitching, is the Washington Nationals. Uh, I think it's more than one guy. Y- you're at least interested in Steven Strasburg. Uh, what, do you, what do you see for – I guess, uh Strasburg, I mean, is he basically the same guy that you that you have remember from before?
1: Well, I think that's the interesting thing, is that, you know, during Strasburg's rehab, there was a lot of talk that the Nationals wanted to get him away from being a high-strikeout guy and get him into being a pitch-to-contact guy in order to be able to go deeper into games, not throw as many pitches, it'd be better for his health. Uh, I started working on a two-seamer, there was a lot of talk that he was going to come up and be this ground-balling machine, and then if you look at it, I mean, it's a small sample of, like, 12 innings over three starts, Strasburg's been a, a pretty significant fly ball guy in his first three starts. It's really nothing at all like you would have expected for a guy who's putting an emphasis on pitching to contact and being a two-seam ground ball guy. He's certainly not walking anyone. He's throwing strikes. Uh, he's faced some pretty bad lineups, so he's had the ability to do that, and he's only had to face hitters once or maybe twice in a game. So we don't know how he's going to be able to do multiple times in a game. The stuff is not quite where it was a year ago, but it's still pretty good. But I think it's interesting how Strasburg... For all the talk that he was going to come back as a different pitcher, I was actually expecting him to show up and run a, you know, 2 to 1 ground ball to strikeout ratio, and, um, we haven't seen anything close to that.
0: Yeah, what's, what's the deal with that? I think his, his, uh, ground ball rate, uh, grant, you know, granted it's early days, but, uh, he was typically running a slightly above average one. Now it's in the, uh, 34, 35 region. Uh, is that because I know that you know typically a, a two-seamer will generate a lot of ground balls? Is uh, is he doing anything different in terms of a pitch mix, or is that putting you on the spot?
1: You know, I mean, from what I've seen, it doesn't seem that he's doing that much more in terms of uh throwing more fastballs than breaking balls. That was another point of emphasis that they were going to try and make him more of a fastball pitcher and less relying on his curveball, because um, there still is the belief out there that breaking balls cause your elbow to hurt. Um, and so I think you know uh, overall that was part of the reason to expect Strasburg to come in as more of a ground ball guy. As if he upped his fastball usage, lowered his breaking ball usage, you get fewer swings and misses, and probably more balls hit on the ground. Um, but so far that just isn't the case. I mean he's getting fewer swings and misses, but he's also getting fewer balls hit on the ground. And so it's not that Steven Strasburg is a, is a bad pitcher. I mean his fastball averaging 97. He hasn't walked anybody, and he's averaging a strikeout printing. Uh That's still pretty awesome. But it's interesting to me that he is not. Necessarily come back as this new, totally redeveloped uh, guy that they worked on for a year in order to kind of keep him healthy. Um, he's come back as a guy with slightly reduced stuff who's pitching in a, a similar manner to what he did last year.
0: Yeah. Now, the rest of that um, rotation for me is exciting, and in particular, the additions of uh, Tom Millone and Brad Peacock. And, and uh, this is the sort of player to which. Uh, I am inherently interested in, I would assume that some baseball nerds out there are in that, uh, neither received uh, very much attention coming into the season. Malone, if he did, because of his exorbitant strikeout to walk ratios, uh, at double A last season, um, and Peacock, well, Peacock not at all. I think he, he uh, had upside at one point, but uh, has had trouble the last couple seasons, uh, but they both put up Pretty excellent minor league numbers again this season. Uh, Peacock ex- absolutely dominated Double A, not quite the same at Triple A. And Malone, Malone was, you know, arguably one of the best pitchers uh, in the minors this season uh, with, uh, you know, you know an 87 mile per hour fastball on a good day, maybe. Uh, you know, do those guys have upside for you, and what does it mean for the Nationals' rotation, uh, generally speaking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think upside is a tough word to use with a pitcher because pitchers are so variable. I don't think anyone thought Jamie Moyer had upside. Obviously, he's the guy that every soft-tossing pitcher is compared to. But, I mean, you could look through Cliff Lee. You know, no one expected Cliff Lee to learn a cutter and do this and uh, turn into one of the best pitchers in baseball. And so I think slapping an upside label on a pitcher is generally risky. But at the same time, we can look through history and say, guys who throw 87 have a very small margin for error. And so if you throw an 85-mile-an-hour fastball, your secondary stuff needs to be amazing, or you're probably going to be limited to a pitch-to-contact guy who needs to not walk anyone and put the ball on the ground a lot in order to be effective. And so, you know, I think for Malone, there's a clear path to the kind of pitcher he needs to be in order to succeed, and that's basically the classic Minnesota Twins pitcher, um, you know, the Brad Radke and the Scott Bakers and the Kevin Slowies of the world. He needs to be that kind of no-walk um, middling strikeout, keep the ball in the yard guy in order to be effective, um, simply because the, the lack of velocity doesn't let him rack up strikeouts. There just aren't guys that throw 87 and get a ton of strikeouts. And so, um, I think, you know, realistically in the major leagues, is he going to be a guy who's going to, you know, compete with the, the Verlanders and the Hallidays now? But could he be a decent major league starter? It, it's certainly possible.
0: You know, one of the, uh, interesting things to me is that I always like looking at, uh, uh major league equivalencies. Um, especially, you know, um, well, you know, for both for the sort of intrinsic value and also uh, for fantasy purposes, of course, if uh, uh, you know one is trying to to mine the miners for talent. Uh, Malone seems to me like one of those interesting cases because if you just uh, translate his numbers uh, from AAA this season, I assume I don't, I don't know precisely what they'd look like, but I assume they'd be amazing because he was striking out. You know, uh, uh, nine more guys basically per nine than he was than he was walking. Um, You know, and so you know, you mentioned a bunch of like control artists, and I don't have Kevin Slowey's minor league numbers at hand. However, I I don't necessarily remember him having a nine to one you know strikeout to walk ratio. Is this just a is this just a fluke, or is there is is it that Malone's command is so excellent? Is he feasting off of uh, you know, triple A type hitters or quad A type hitters in a way that he won't be able to with the major leagues?
1: Yeah, I mean I think we have seen uh over the years that there is a certain type of pitcher who can do to triple A hitters what he cannot do to Major League hitters. That there is an ability to uh mix your pitches, throw pitches off the plate, and essentially outsmart young hitters who are not experienced enough to lay off breaking balls in the dirt and they, you know, haven't seen enough good off speed pitches and change ups in order to discern it regularly enough that these guys who hide the ball well and, you know, mix a a bunch of junk and throw it for strikes can do really well in the minors and they can't do nearly as well in the major leagues. I think there's a, a certain group of pitchers that we've been able to see who consistently come up and underperform their minor league numbers because the stuff's just not there. And so I think, you know, that's why... Uh, I would say a minor league strike-out-to-walk ratio, while interesting, needs to at least be accompanied by some sort of scouting report on, this guy has an out pitch that will work in the major leagues, because if you don't have an out pitch, you get two strikes, you're just going to get into a foul ball it, battle where you just you nibble around the zone and, and the major league hitters are going to line it into the seats until you throw something they can hit, and they're not going to be chasing pitches three feet outside like a Willy Mo Peña might be.
0: So you're just talking, is, is, is Marrow Petit the uh, poster boy for the
1: type of player you just described? Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely one of those guys who scouts stat- fell in love with because the strikeouts rates were phenomenal, and uh, scouts were like, "Hey, he throws eighty-eight, and there's there's just nothing there. It's all deception." And he got to the major leagues and he got bombed. And I think you know, Miro petit is a perfect example of this kind of pitcher who is doing something in the minors that just won't work in the majors.
0: Yeah, it doesn't appear to have worked in the majors yet,
1: <laughs> <laughs> or or ever in any <laughs>
0: case. Uh, Okay, Uh, Dave Cameron, uh, I think that we'll let you go now. You seem to have uh, fulfilled your duties to the pod. Uh, Do you you have any other uh, bold pronouncements to make?
1: Uh, I think I'm going to skip on the bold pronouncements and just uh, focus on staying alive.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, (laughs) good call. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Dave.
1: All right, thanks for having me, Carson.
0: Right, and by us I mean me, that is the royal we. Uh, I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.